have some, I, some, you had a lot of conversation going on there with some of the, the most famous people or most important people you've met. Uh, I really don't have a very long list of that, so I was curious. I actually heard out that there's one, there's Eleanor Roosevelt, someone met. So that's a heck of a lot more important than Charles Barkley, who I met. So, you know, <laughs> maybe not as influential, but more important. So, uh, good. Okay, let me hear some others. Let me hear some really ones that you heard that you thought, wow, that's really interesting. Some famous or important people. Yeah. Roy Rogers, all right. The guy who made that drink when you put the cherry in the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> who else? Moses, all right. <laughs> what was that? Charlton Heston, okay. <laughs> That's great. Someone's like, wow, someone met Moses. That's awesome. Anyone else? Yeah. George Bush, okay, there you go. Yeah. Well, we don't. We need to get out more, I guess. So, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right. <laughs> Rob Machado. There you go. A little local flavor there. That's good. It's good. <laughs> I know you're all being modest. I know some of you were um, hoping to hear your name shouted, and it wasn't. Sorry. <laughs> This morning, we are going to continue our series uh, called Renovation, and we're looking at stories out of, the, out of the Gospels of how Jesus interacted with his disciples and how the grace of Jesus was renovating or changing the way they think, the way they lived. And I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 13. We're going to continue that series here today, and we're going to look at an encounter uh, of Jesus as probably the most famous one ever, <laughs> the most recognizable name in the history of the world, and how he responded as not only a famous one, but an important person, and how he interacted with the lives of the people around him. So pray with me as we begin. God, we thank you for this time. I thank you uh, just for your grace. I thank you uh, for how good you are to us, and right now, would you speak to us and and renovate our hearts and our lives as you were renovating the people that you that you encountered um, so many years ago. So we thank you and give you this time now. Amen. In the book of John chapter 13, we find a scene where Jesus is sitting down for a meal called that we now call the Last Supper. And when he was with his disciples, this was a part of the Jewish feast of Passover. And he was spending the evening with them, and this likely wasn't the only time he sat down and had Passover with his disciples. We know that Jesus was very religious. We know through Scripture that he followed the commands of, of Scripture, and he made his pilgrimages each year to celebrate the feasts in Israel, uh, or in Jerusalem, and we find him here on the night before we, we learn that he's betrayed and cr- handed over and crucified, that he is celebrating Passover with his disciples. And what's really interesting is Passover was and is to this day a celebration. It's a festival celebrating freedom. It's a celebration of God's arm of deliverance as he took his people out of bondage in, in, from Egypt 
led them out of the hands of Pharaoh and eventually into the land promised to them. And so they were commanded on the, on the original Passover to eat this meal with haste and then every year afterwards to eat this meal each year to remember what God has done for you. And to remember that God does not forget His promises. That God delivered His people. And so it's a festival of freedom. As the Jewish people to this day will look back and remember the bitterness and the sorrow of slavery and of bondage and celebrate that God set them free. So Jesus is sitting down with His disciples and recalling the events of the very first Passover as is tradition of this meal. And as they celebrate and recall the events, they would be telling the stories of you were in slavery, but God set your ancestors free. He gave Pharaoh chance after chance as he sent plagues, and and Pharaoh refused to relent until finally a plague of the firstborn hit. And the only ones who would be free from this were those who had a Passover lamb sacrificed and the blood covering their home. And Jesus was telling this story and recalling the events with His disciples that night. Being the leader, we know that He would be the one sharing these stories. They would be asking the questions. And they talked about once being people in bondage and now being people who are free. They reclined at the table. Reclining at the table in the first century was a symbol of we are no longer slaves. You see, slaves had to stand and be ready to serve, but free people could recline and eat. So they reclined at the table, as Scripture tells us. They were, it was a symbol of freedom. We don't have to serve anyone. We are free. And as Jesus kept telling the stories, and they kept recalling this, this night really started taking on new meaning. You see, because not only is this a festival of freedom, a deliverance from bondage and a slavery, but it also is a festival where we, they look forward to a future kingdom that will come through God's anointed one, through God's Messiah, which it means the anointed one. Someone that God will send His Son, His very Son to come. And the disciples who'd been journeying with Jesus for perhaps three years at this point have had these conversations with Him. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the way He teaches. They've seen the way He interacts with other people. They've come to the conclusion that Jesus is that Messiah. And now they're celebrating the very meal where they remember God's deliverance and look forward to a once and for all future deliverance with the One who they've been waiting for. This is a unique experience they were having. And we find in John chapter 13, as he's recalling the stories and the events and and longing for the Messiah, perhaps the conversation turned. Perhaps the disciples started talking about, Jesus, this will be great when you once and for all establish your kingdom reign. Because you see, even though they were free, they were still under another kingdom. 
Once again, the people of Israel found themselves under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And on this night that Jesus is celebrating with them, they know, they believe He's the Messiah. They're longing for Him to deliver them now from Rome and saying one day the future kingdom will be established. And you can imagine how they are getting excited. The Messiah is sitting with us in this room tonight. And we're talking about longing for His redemption. Perhaps while the meal was going on, a conversation kicked in, and it's a conversation that the other writers in the Gospel remind us of and and point to from a couple other times. A conversation that it seems would come up when you start thinking of God's future kingdom, and the disciples who are right there with Jesus start wondering, well, I wonder who gets to reign with Jesus. I wonder who gets to be the commander over some armies. I wonder who gets to be at His right hand. In fact, we find even two of the disciples, their mom goes to them and asks and says, Jesus, hey, can you, uh, you know, when you come back in your future kingdom, make sure my kids are at your right and your left hand? (laughs) Mothers, always looking out for their kids. (laughs) You see, they were wondering, well, if Jesus is establishing his kingdom, if Jesus is going to be in control, that means that, hey, we've got to have a pretty high status. This is going to be great. We can't wait to overthrow Rome. We're right there with you. And the conversation continues on. Maybe veering a little off course. And while they talk and they discuss what it will look like, while they remember what it was like for their ancestors to be in slavery, how they feel in bondage, and what it will be like to be free, while they're discussing, Jesus gets up quietly. And he walks over to the corner of the room where there would be a a basin, a bowl of water. You see, this bowl of water in first century would have been supplied there by the owner of the home. And and it was to wash your feet. And if he really wanted to honor the guests, he would have supplied a servant to wash the feet. That's the highest form of hospitality, but it doesn't appear that they got that. But they had the water. They had the towel. So while they're discussing the events of the past and the future, Jesus walked over and grabbed the basin. He grabbed the towel. And he walked back to the table, likely oblivious to the rest of his disciples. And he kneels down next to one of them. Which one? I don't know where he started. (laughs) I don't know. I like to think he'd start at the most honored guest, the one sitting at his right hand that night, who dipped his hand in the, the basin with him, or in, in, the, in the, the, sorry, the salt water, and in the dip the vegetables with him that night as tradition. That person probably was Judas Iscariot in the highest place of honor that night. Perhaps he started with him. And Jesus rolled up his sleeves and began washing his feet. The job only a servant would do, and he washes his feet, and slowly the conversations would have ended. As he goes to the next disciple, grabs the towel, wipes the dirt and the mud off his feet, and moves on to the next one. 
But this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. What is He doing the job of a slave for? On the very night when they're reclining at the table and remembering that we no longer have to be servants of anyone, we are free, yet Jesus changes it as He always does. He flips it upside down and becomes a servant this night. I can imagine the disciples and how they would feel as Jesus was going around and coming to them. Could you imagine what it would be like to think, oh, I'm next. This is going to be awkward. If it were me, I think about then, I would have to go to the bathroom for a little while (laughs) to leave the room. It would feel strange. No, Jesus. And as he took off their sandals, began to wash the feet, I imagine Jesus looked right up at them. Would you have the strength to look back? (laughs) Or would you look away? Embarrassed of what's happening here. The Son of God, what are you doing? Eventually he gets to a disciple named Peter. Our friend Peter. (laughs) Peter likes to say what's on his mind. (laughs) And he gets to Peter... The very one that when Jesus one day was standing in the boat and and Peter realized who he was standing next to, the Son of God, he says, get away from me, Jesus, because I am not fit to be in the same boat with you. You don't understand. I am a sinful person. A couple years later, three years later, now here's Jesus once again coming to Peter and he stands up and says, no, no, Jesus, you are not going to wash my feet. Not going to happen. It's enough that you want to hang out with me, but to touch my feet, to be my servant? No. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, what I'm going you don't, to do, you don't realize now, but you'll understand later. If I do not, and, and Peter again says, never will you wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me, Peter. Now, take a pause from the story just a moment here because there's a little theological something being added in and and the writer John loves to add just this deep nugget of truth in the middle of his stories (laughs) and there's a double meaning happening here one we're going to get back to what it means that Jesus actually washing the feet but he took this moment to slip in some theology and he says what you what I'm about to do you don't realize yet Peter I'm going to wash your feet, and if I don't do this, you have no part of me. In other words, I'm going to do something that will make you clean, Peter. What I'm going to do is very important. And the double meaning here actually refers to back in uh, the Old Testament law, in the the Hebrew Scriptures, there's laws of cleanliness. and In particular, in Exodus 30, there's some talk about washing the feet for the priests. That makes them clean and allows them to stand before God. And so Jesus is referring to that in part and saying it's about ceremonial cleanliness. But there's something more happening because Jesus also is saying, and what is about to happen tonight is going to make you clean once and for all. So that's kind of the theological side point that's happening here. And I love the response of Peter because Jesus says, 
Peter, if I, you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter says, if washing my feet allows me to be part of you, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head. Bathe me, Jesus. If that's what it takes to be a part of you, I want it all. I love that honesty. I love that honesty. To which Jesus says, no, just your feet, man. Just your feet. (laughs) Don't push it. (laughs) And that's when he refers to Exodus 30 and says, it's just your feet who will make you clean. You're missing the point, Peter. So back to the story. When Jesus says, he goes on and he, in verse 12, he washed all their feet. He took his garments and he reclined at the table again. He went back into the posture of someone who is free, but for a moment he was their slave, serving them. And he reclines back at the table and he says, do you know what I have done to you? This is the time when the teacher asks a question and everyone looks down, (laughs) afraid to answer. I'm not sure what you just did. And you know the class clown was probably saying, yeah, you washed our feet. (laughs) He says, do you know what I have just done? And Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. I love that. You call me Lord, and you're right. Because I am Lord. And you know, in first century, as is the case today, if you are Lord, you are not a servant. But Jesus says, you're right. I am Lord. I am teacher. I am master. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Now, before any of you get too uncomfortable this morning, we are not passing a basin around and washing each other's feet. (laughs) But Jesus this morning is asking us to follow his example. So the question we have for us today is what does this example mean? What is the significance of what Jesus just did when he takes a posture of a servant and washes the feet of his students, of the ones who should be serving him. What can we learn from that? And so I just have a few thoughts that we want to look at here to find what does this example of Jesus mean for us today. If we are to do as Jesus did, we have to understand what is behind this. What is the heart of this? You see, because the heart of God is always for his people. He cares deeply about his people. And so Jesus leaves us example. We need to know, what does this mean? So first of all, one of my thoughts here is this, that when we take on this posture of a servant as Jesus did, one of the profound things that we learn from this is that it actually sets us free from a lot of needless strife about our own status. When you're able to elevate someone else, now notice this too, it's not that Jesus was making himself insignificant, it was he was making the other people in the room more significant. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm worthless, I'm nobody. He's saying, no, you are worthy of being made clean. 
So Jesus leaves an example of how we should look at others, how we should treat others, how we should elevate others. And one of the first practical things that happens is it sets us free from the need to be approved by them. Let me show you what I mean. I was talking with um, my high school son yesterday, and we were kind of hanging out. We went on a little hike, and we were talking about in high school and, and how more and more fitting in is, is, is difficult. Everyone wants to fit in. And everyone wants to stand out. They want to stand out, to you know, but they want to fit in at the same time. So by trying to be different and standing out, they do what everyone else does. And uh, so that no one can look at them and think anything less, right? So you worry about status. But we were talking about high school, but then I said, you know what? The truth is, when you get older, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. If you think when you get older that you can stop worrying about everyone else's thoughts, like, do you think adults have this figured out? And I was remembering when my wife and I were married um, kind of early on, and uh, we just had him, so he was, he was a, a newborn baby, and we moved from our job. We were living in Fullerton, California. I was in seminary, and I was working at a church, and um, also working as a substitute teacher to support the ministry habit. And, and so we were doing that, and then moved to South Orange County. And if you know South Orange County, it... it you know, status is important to a lot of people there. And we had um, one car that I bought in high or in college, and it was a nice car. And then we just got another one from my sister-in-law. And the price of the car was, she said, well, she used to live down here in San Diego, and she moved back to Seattle and said, you can have the car. Um, I parked it in front of my house, and I left it there. You just have to pay the parking tickets, and it's yours. I'm like, Serious? Good deal, I'll do it. So about $180 later, I had a brand new, well, a 25-year-old Mazda 626. <laughs> it had the really nice sunspots on the top of it. And it, you know, it had a few little dents. And um, the nice thing is, is one of the doors did open from the inside, and the other three did not, so you had to kind of crawl through the one. And um, when you accelerated too fast, you would stall, so you had to know to go just a little bit, and then you could accelerate. And uh, one of the windows was stuck halfway down half the time. So, you know, it was pretty nice. <laughs> some of you have had, some of you may have owned that car before I did, maybe. <laughs> And don't worry, when I was done with it, we gave it to a missionary. <laughs> True story. But <laughs> when I first pulled into Mission Viejo, California, driving that car, all of a sudden I realized how much I care about what people thought. Because I noticed that one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> and it was me. <laughs> it was my car. And it was hard to drive through town and look around and realize wow, what do they think of me? And to tell myself, well, I don't really care. It doesn't matter, but I cared. And then we bought this house. It was a thousand square foot house and the front yard was as big as a stage, which was fantastic when I had to mow it. Um, but it was small and we had three kids living in this house. And when we first moved there, my wife was hanging out. She met some people from the church and they came over. And one of the first things they said is, oh, these houses are so cute. We thought about moving in this neighborhood, but you know, you can't really live in here with a family. We're like, oh, we have a family. 
And we felt that. All of our furniture was hand-me-down from my parents. And, and my mom at the time, you know, she was into a different style than what we're into. <laughs> the pink plaid couches did fit well for the youth pastor, but, you know. And we worried about that. We didn't worry, but it would pop up. And why? Because every time we, I, I struggle with that, it's when I'm looking around at others. And I'm not elevating them and lifting them up and taking the tension off of me as if anyone even really cares. Because I want to be liked. <laughs> I want people to think, oh, you're wonderful. That's why I, I, I bought a dog. I have a dog. How many of you have a dog? The reason we have dogs is because that way somebody thinks we're wonderful. <laughs> Does anyone have a dog that doesn't like them? One back there? It's a little dog, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It thinks it's a cat. That's why. <laughs> if you have a big dog, we have big dogs because they always love you. It doesn't matter. My dog thinks I'm the coolest person on earth. That's why I have this thing. He's not smart. <laughs> he's a golden retriever, you know, so you come home and he's just like this all the time. Hey, wagging his tail, looking at me. What are we doing now, boss? <laughs> he makes me feel pretty good. <laughs> Last night, my son and I walked to the store. We tie him up on the bench and go into the store. And he's like, oh no, my master's leaving me forever. And when we come out, he just starts jumping around like, Oh, you came back! The coolest person in the world came back for me! I love having a dog because he is the one who no matter what thinks I'm pretty cool. <laughs> he doesn't care if my sermons are good or not. <laughs> uh, kind of side note, but Ann Landers wrote once, Speaking of wanting to feel wonderful, she said, um, don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. So, you know, <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't just trust his opinion. But when I learn to serve others, what it does is it releases me, it takes my attention off myself, and it starts to put my attention on other people and lifting them up, and it frees me from even caring anymore because there's something bigger at stake. I'm elevating the life of someone else. Jesus gives us the example, and I believe he wants us to see this example because he knows how destructive it is when we serve ourselves and want others serving us. And he knows how freeing it is when we can turn our attention to others and lift them up, then we, start, we stop worrying about whether they think our car is good enough. We're set free from that when we follow this example. There's another reason that we should follow this example. We find it in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this when he's writing to the church in Philippi. He's speaking of Jesus and he says this. I have it on the screen for you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit or vain conceit. Some translations will say it. There's something interesting about that. And this is, Paul says, this was the example Jesus left for us. 
to consider others as better than yourself. Now, there's something that I, I, I love this in here. The, the phrase vain conceit or empty conceit is actually a Greek word that is related to glory. And it says empty glorying. In other words, don't do anything that's going to bring glory to something or someone that is just wasted. It's empty. And when is it empty? When it's trying to lift ourselves up and bring glory to ourselves. Because this Greek word stands directly in contrast to the one word that's reserved for God and it's the glory, to, glory, to glorify God. To bring Him, His name, lift His name up. It says, instead of lifting His name up, you fo- focus on empty glory when you're looking out for your own interest. See, when we follow the example of Jesus... The first thing it does is it does set us free from having to worry about other people's thoughts, but the other thing it does is it puts the focus and the glory on the proper place, and that is on our King of the universe, the Creator of the world, Jesus Christ. See, the way we serve and treat other people, it's a way of releasing and saying, I will not live to make myself and my status more important. And every time we do that, it eventually points back to God. People will wonder why you act that way. Is there anyone out there who, if you know a friend or you know someone who's just a servant, who builds other people up, who doesn't seem to be about themselves, how many of you are like, oh, I hate being around those kind of people? (laughs) Those are the best people in the world. I've had the privilege of knowing some of them, having some friends who I look at and think, you guys are like my favorite people. You always make me feel great being around you. Just the way you you never make me think that you're trying to outdo me. You're lifting me up. And ultimately that points back to God because they're not about themselves. When you're not about yourself, it allows you to be about someone else. It allows us to not live with pride in comparison. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I have this quote for you on the screen. He's speaking of pride. And C.S. Lewis says, As long as you are proud, you cannot truly know God. A proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. See, when we are looking down on others instead of lifting them up, we can't really see God. And so Jesus gives us an example and says, would you learn to consider others more than yourself? And that doesn't mean because, to walk around thinking, oh, we're so low in the dirt. No, you're a cre- child of God, created in His image. But the people around you are too. And so He says, lift them up. And as you lift them up, then you can truly see the Father. Your focus comes off of yourself. Jesus tells a parable in the book of Luke, chapter 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll tell it to you quickly. And there's two people in this. There's a Pharisee who's a teacher of the law. And then there's a guy named, he's a tax collector, which is usually synonymous with with the sinners or people who don't get Scripture or the law. They do not follow God. And Jesus says both of them are in the temple and they're praying. And the Pharisee begins praying and he says this. He was standing by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. If any of your prayers start that way, by the way, (laughs) we have some classes for you here. Okay, so God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I love that prayer. He's, He's like, oh, I'm not like that guy. 
I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But then Jesus said there was the tax collector. He was standing far off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one is the one I want you to be? You see, when we live and lift ourselves up above others, we can't even see God. It becomes all about us. Jesus leaves us the example to consider others more than ourselves. To walk with humility. He leaves a challenge for the church. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. We have this for you. When he's speaking of, of this, he adds on to humility and says, this is the result. He says, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility, with this posture that says, I want to lift other people up. And with gentleness, with patience, show tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul says, church, when you interact with each other, walk with a spirit of humility, considering others' needs. That will allow you to love. It will allow you to walk in gentleness, in forgiveness, with patience. He says in Colossians chapter 3, also have this for you, verse 12 and 13 says this, Those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgiving one, one, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you should forgive. In other words, Paul keeps writing to the church and says, we need to be a place that's clothed with humility, with compassion, for one another, lifting each other up as Christ did, holding the towel and saying, I will serve you. Because when we do that, we see God more clearly and we let ourselves not be the issue. You know, I've shared the example before and the reason why, because I think it's very tangible. But when I, I used to drive, I was like one of those road rage guys. And I mean, it, it's kind of funny. It's, it sometimes seems like a joke, but it's, I'd, seriously, I'd get bugged by almost everyone around me because no one had the superior knowledge and abilities I have on the road. Um, I am fantastic driving and, and never make mistakes. And um, <laughs> so some of you are like, wow, I should learn from you. Yeah. But so I used to be bugged, so bugged by everyone else around me until one day I realized, what, what's the point? The only reason I'm bugged by them is because I think I'm better than they are. For you, maybe it's not driving. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's the people in your house. You're better than all of them. So everything they do bugs you. You see, when we live our lives and put ourselves on the pedestal and, and forget to lift others up above ourselves, all kinds of little issues start popping up. I was working at a church a while ago and, and we went through some transitions and, and had some staff people and, and there was conflict that, that arose. And it's, it's, you probably heard of it because it's the only church where it's ever happened. And, um, and so I was working at this church and there was some conflict and, and one, the new leader and I just did not see eye to eye. We did not get along. And we never had any big issues publicly, but privately we just, there, it just wasn't going to work. And I never did anything against him. I never did anything to, to harm him. But I never did anything. I didn't do anything to serve him or to lift him up. 
Truthfully, I probably thought I was better than him and I had all the answers and he didn't. And eventually I left. And uh, we, you know, talked and, and before I left and we left and said everything was fine. But I knew it wasn't. And so about a year and a half, two years later, I just knew I've got to release this. And so I had to call him and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry for the way I interacted with you. I'm sorry for the way I treated you and, and didn't lift you up. And uh, so can we meet? And this story doesn't have a happy ending. We never had the meeting. Only one of us wanted to have it. But at that moment, Jesus said to me, you got to let this go because you think you're the important one here. But you need to humble yourself and lift someone else up. I don't have to worry about the response of another person. I have to worry about me. So for us in here today, the questions we have is who are the people in your life that you like to elevate yourself above that maybe you need to treat them better? Who are those people in your life? Is it a spouse? Maybe one of your sons or daughters? Maybe a parent? Maybe a coworker? Maybe a boss? <laughs> who are the people that you know you keep positioning yourself above and keep finding conflict time and again. Is God this morning calling you to grab the towel, to follow the example of Jesus and serve them and lift them up? I know. Why, why do I always get these light subjects? I don't know why. <laughs> I love this. It's for those who think, hey, I, I have a long way to go. Struggling. Ernest Hemingway said this There's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is in being superior to your former self. We're on a journey. You don't have to be superior to anyone else but your former self, and Jesus is the one shaping you. So take that step. One other challenge for us as a church, I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up as we end here is corporately as a church, we believe that we need to be washing the feet of our community. That's why we care about this thing called Love Encinitas. We want to find ways that the church, Seacoast, representing Jesus Christ, can lift up our city and say, we elevate you. Do we agree with everything about your lives? No. But Jesus rolled up the towel and washed the feet of those that he was far superior with. We're not in that position. So why would we not roll up our sleeves and wash the feet of our community? That's why next week we're going to be serving a local elementary school. It's a public school. They probably teach things some of you don't want them to teach. What better place for you to roll up your sleeves and wash their feet and elevate them and let God shine through you? We started this a year ago with the Sunset High School, with the alternative high school in our area. And the coolest thing about next week is the students that we've been serving for the last year at Sunset, many of them are joining us to serve at the elementary school. That points to Jesus, not us. That shows that God's glory is being lifted up, not us. I encourage you to join us next week to serve our community. The other thing you can do is you can learn to, or we can join in and serving each other here. Yes, is this a shameless plug? Yes, it is. 
We have all kinds of areas where you can serve. You might say, but, you know, I'm really busy during the week. It is inconvenient, isn't it, to be a servant and to lift someone else up? (laughs) When you think of someone else, this is needs more than your own. Something, Something as simple as serving coffee once a month. Hey, we need some people to help with that. But you're serving all these people plus visitors. Would you be willing to do that? Children's ministry. We can always use more people saying, you know what? I know I have a heart for that. I just haven't been willing to commit. Would you say, you know what? I want to lift up those families and those kids and serve them. We still have a need for one more female volunteer in junior high ministry. Who doesn't love hanging out with junior hires? (laughs) Parent of a junior hire laughing over there. Let's be a church of people who are willing to roll up our sleeves, grab the towel and serve. And let that point to Jesus and let his reputation shine. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you. It's really about you and it's not about us. We thank you that is your name that's lifted high. And God, would you help us be a church that puts ourselves aside and lifts others up so that the world can see who you really are. So that we are not people who are fighting for our own reputation, our own status, but we trust it in your hands and point our lives to you. That's that's our desire, God. And we give you this now. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing this last song and just declare that Jesus is the one who's worthy of the status of the glory and not us.